Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We're both writers and have set up this podcast so that we can share the stories we write with you. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks. It really helps. As you may recall, in our last episode, Judith Dalton left her friend's house much later than she should have. Trying to beat her parents home, she decided to take a shortcut through the woods. Unfortunately, a dangerous pack of koi dogs stood between her and her house. Before the animals could see her, she stepped off the path and into the woods seeking another way home. Suddenly, she heard someone following her and began to run. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yardwork, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Joe Martin stepped out of his cruiser in front of the large field that lay just to the east of the old Fayette farmhouse. It had grown suddenly cold, much too cold for the 9th of November. The time from early August until now had been the most unusual dry spell in anyone's memory. The forest was tender dry. The amount of deadfall it contained was capable of sustaining a fire once it began. Watching John Fayette as he stood alone in the middle of his field, burning brush, Joe thought of the ban the forestry department had placed on open brush burning since the early 1950s. Now, with the fire hazard warning that the forestry department had issued, no burning of any kind was to be done. John Fayette's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, like many of the other families in the area, had logged the surrounding woods, thinning it, burning all the brush that they had gathered, clear-cutting the trees from the flatter land to create the open fields that eventually became the farm. Not once had there been a forest fire in this area. He knew if he were to ask John Fayette to cease his burning, John would tell him that he was trying to make sure there were no fires by burning the brush, as his people had done for generations. What had once been a large pile was now reduced to cherry-red coals, that had as yet not fallen to embers. They still retained the shape of the original wood, their smoke blown like large snaking gray-black columns high overhead into the gathering dusk, the smoke periodically caught in downdrafts, at times engulfing the octogenarian. Fayette never seemed to change. Joe Martin had known him for as long as he could remember, but the old man still looked just the way he had when Joe was a young boy a lean, muscular build that belied his true age and seemed more suited to someone at least 20 years his junior. Joe usually loved the musky, woody smell of the burning brush, 
but the smell of this brush fire struck him as odd. Years before, as a boy, he had stood in these same fields with John, tending the fires, as the old man told him stories of his youth, how he had played and hunted in the surrounding mountains. The sharp scent of burning wood brought all of the memories back. Joe smiled and waved to Fayette, and the old man gave him his usual measured New England nod. Joe opened the gate to the field and walked to where the old man was tending his fire. As he approached, Joe noticed that there was a second pile of brush waiting to be burned. Fayette's mongrel dog was excited, running around the second pile, barking and jumping up on the brush as if he were trying to get at something. Brewster, you fool dog, you get away from that brush. I ain't looking to pay no vet to pull out porcupine quills two weeks in a row if that's what you've got cornered in there, Fayette shouted. Brewster retreated a short distance and sat down, his eyes warily watching first Fayette and then the second brush pile. Well, you come to talk to me, Joe? Fayette seemed to be holding back a slight knowing smile. It's been a while, but I wanted to see how you were doing. Looks like you've been working hard here, John. The old man let the smile appear. You know you didn't come out here to see me, Joe. You've been out driving, trying to figure something out. You haven't changed from when you were a boy, out riding your bike, breathing in God's clean air, trying to puzzle out some solution to a problem you'd run smack into. Now it was Joe's turn to smile. The old man knew him well. He'd spent a lot of time helping him with his farm after school, at first just to earn a little bit of pocket change. But before long, he and the old man had become good friends. Smells like you got something caught in that fire, John. You know, I wouldn't know that, Joe. You know my sniffer hasn't worked right since that accident. Probably some critter that was trying to hide from Brewster and didn't make it out before I started to burn. That's a hell of a way for any of God's creatures to go. Has there been any news about Linda Morgan? You know, my late wife and her grandmother were good friends. Joe looked at him and shook his head. No, nobody's heard anything yet. Well, what has it been now, three days? It's been closer to four. Chauncey's been moping around here for the last few days, missing her, I guess. He built my brush piles for me. Helped him to keep his mind off Linda, I think. But to tell you the truth, I figure when she does show up, she's going to be married. I know Chauncey thought Linda was going to tie the knot with him, but I haven't had the heart to tell Chauncey what I saw a couple of months back. Curious now, Joe asked. What did you see, John? Well, I don't know if I should tell you or not. I wouldn't want to destroy anyone's reputation, but since there are no women folk around, I guess I can tell you, and you are the law. It must have been the end of July, the first week in August. I was out with Brewster doing my evening constitutional. Like always, he ran ahead, chasing some critter. I came around that old tree at the back of my property, and there was Linda Morgan and Howard Burdett. I watched them for a while. She brought back memories. I used to fuck like that. Whoa, John, I don't need to know that, Joe interjected. John cackled. Okay, Joe. Anyway, Howard, he was putting it to a real good Joe. Real good. I was standing there, getting a good eyeful, when Burdette happened to look up. 
You should have seen his face. John laughed and shook his head back and forth. It isn't often you get to see a show like that for free. That's when Howard Burdett jumped up, his pants down around his knees, his pecker swaying back and forth in the wind, trying like all get out to pull those pants of his up. What the hell are you looking at, you dirty old man? You have no right standing there gawking at us. I should beat your ass. That's what he told me. Joe smirked and then laughed out loud. John Fayette had a way of making even the most embarrassing situations sound funny. Well, Joe, that's when I told him that this was my property, and I wanted to know what he thought he was doing here. Linda was trying to cover up, cover her face, trying to keep me from seeing who it was, but I already knew. I told him he should be trying to cover himself up and warned him about getting too quick with the zipper. That's when he told me I'd better keep my mouth shut or he'd come back and smash my head in. They hightailed it out of there, tripping and falling, trying to put on their clothes. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Did you tell anybody? No. You're the first person I breathed the word to, the old man replied, pulling at the crotch of his pants. Did Chauncey know? I didn't tell him, but I think he suspected. There are certain things a real man can't help but suspect. Did he continue to see Linda? He did, but I suspect things weren't quite as lovey-dovey as they had been. Is that why you said you thought when Linda came back she'd be married, but not to Chauncey? The old man nodded and poked at the fire. My guess is they ran off together, she and Howard Burdett. That's what I think really happened, Joe. Joe thought for a moment and then said, You're probably right. I've got to go back to town, John. Thanks for the information. John Fayette nodded and Joe turned to leave. He hadn't gone far when he turned back to face the old man. Do me a favor, John. Give it a couple of days before you set fire to that second brush pile. I wouldn't want you to get a ticket. The old man nodded and laughed. Brewster started barking again, rushing toward the second brush pile. Joe watched the dog frantically pawing at the pile, pushing its muzzle through the brush. He remembered what Linda's mother had said, that her daughter had left with Chauncey. But she had overheard Linda speaking with someone on the phone just before Chauncey had arrived. All she heard was, He wouldn't dare do anything with you there. That had concerned her. She had asked Linda who she was speaking with. It's just a friend from work, Mom. I'll tell you about it when I get back. Chauncey had driven up and honked his horn. Linda had slowly gotten her things together. She had taken a deep breath and then walked out the door, as if she were about to do something she didn't want to do. That was almost four days ago. Brewster's persistent barking prompted John to bend down and pick up a stick. He half-heartedly threw it at the animal and shouted, I said be quiet, Brewster, and get away from there, you old troublemaker. Just as before, the dog retreated a few feet and then sat down and watched the brush pile intently. Something was wrong. Joe could feel it. He'd been a homicide detective in the city before he came back to Grover's Notch. He'd learned to follow his intuition. John had just told him that Chauncey was the one who had built the brush piles. Two of them. John Fayette was watching him. What is it, Joe? 
Before Joe could respond, he saw Chauncey Cuthbert's red pickup truck drive by, slow, real slow. Chauncey looked in their direction and then drove on up the hill, his truck picking up speed. John, could I have a look at those piles of yours? The old man scratched his head and nodded. Sure, Joe, you go on ahead. I knew you couldn't resist it for too long, just like when you were a boy. These brush piles held some fascination for you. John Fayette handed Joe his stick. Joe probed the fiery pile. Embers burst into the air, taking flight like fireflies and died. He pushed the stick in and out of the almost spent pile several times. He stopped and stared into the fire. He turned to John. Could I have a look at your other pile? I told you that you could, but be careful. I wouldn't want you to get bit. There's something in there for sure. That fool dog has been going on all day, trying to get at whatever it is. John, these logs on the bottom are pretty big for a brush pile. You could have taken those to the sawmill. No, they're just deadfall. They wouldn't have taken it. It's rotten. It's not even good for firewood. I told Chauncey to leave it, let it just go back to the earth, but he insisted. You know how young people are. They have their own way of doing things. I guess he didn't want to have to deal with it come spring. Joe nodded. Is it all right if I take some of this brush off the top of the pile? What are you looking for? I'll know when I find it. And if I don't find it, I'll put it all back. The old man scratched his head again. Okay, fair enough, Joe. Joe pulled hard to disentangle the boughs of three or four large tree branches that had been thrown across the top of the pile. He gave the hopelessly tangled wood a sharp yank. The branches were locked together. He finally lifted the whole mass from the pile and threw it to the ground. The smaller branches, birch, oak, and some elm that he found beneath were entangled as well, but they were lighter. After ten minutes of strenuous work, Brewster charged into the pile, poking his muzzle in and out of the entangled mass, barking, yipping, running back and forth excitedly. It was then that Joe got the first faint, sweet smell of decaying flesh. Well, Joe, did you find what you were looking for? I believe I have, John, Joe said solemnly. Can you call Brewster? The Meriwether Inn, a landmark since 1810, sat between two large maple trees 100 feet back from the road. Its one park-like acre of land consisted of an expansive manicured front lawn with large old maples attractively spaced across its expanse, interrupted by a red cobbled brick path that stopped at the front steps of the structure and a selectively treed section at the back of the inn that contained old-growth oak, maple, and evergreen. All centenarians are older. A large gravel parking lot was situated to the left of the building. The brick and wood structure, with its two opposing chimneys, was classic New England. Green shutters lay on either side of each of its large, evenly spaced windows. Oversized brass handles had replaced the previously more sedate pewter doorknobs of the two oak front doors. The building had been renovated and restored over the years. One of its newest renovations was a wraparound porch. 
The inn sat across the street from the town green. Opposite the inn was the post office. At the head of the town green was the Unitarian church, and at the far end of the green, opposite the church, were several brick homes that had been occupied by generation after generation of families that had, over time, gained some influence in Grover's Notch. Joe found Chauncey's red pickup truck in the inn's parking lot. He stopped and felt the truck's hood as he walked toward the inn's two large oak doors. The hood was still warm. Chauncey couldn't have been here long. A car door slammed behind Joe and he turned. Bill Bannister walked toward him. Sheriff, are you sure you want to go through with this? It's not by the book. Chauncey could have a weapon. People could get hurt. Bill, if I take you and the other deputies in there with me, Chauncey is going to know we found the bodies. He's going to get nervous, feel cornered. Cornered men can easily become desperate men, and desperate men often do foolish things. No, I think the best way to handle this is for me to go in there by myself. Joe glanced at his watch. I called the order in five minutes ago. I'll go in on the pretense of picking it up. Get close to him, put the cuffs on him, and bring him out. And if you can't and things go wrong, Bill looked at Joe intently. I still think that we should go in in force and take him. But you're the sheriff, Joe, Bill Bannister replied, obviously displeased with Joe's decision. Joe looked at him thoughtfully. Yes, I am, Bill. The two large oak doors closed behind him. The smell of freshly baked rolls and apple pie filled the air. Those were the scents that greeted him as he rounded the corner and stepped up to the long counter. He looked around the dimly lit dining room. There was a couple sitting at a table near the counter. A group of four men sitting at a table near the back of the room. A single person sitting at a table near the far wall. Four other single people sitting at individual tables scattered across the room. And one person sitting at the counter. Sally, is my order ready? An attractive girl in her late 20s, early 30s glanced up, her bright blue eyes staring at him, puzzled. Joe stared back at her. Her brows furrowed. Joe's stare became more intense. She hesitated and then stammered, I'll, I'll check on it for you, Sheriff. She turned and slowly began to walk away, staring back at him over her shoulder. Could I get a cup of coffee first? Joe could only imagine what she was thinking. She had only taken his order five minutes before. Sure thing, Sally answered as she walked down the length of the counter to the coffee maker. Regular, right? She called over her shoulder. You've got a good memory. I'll take it over here, Sally, Joe said, walking halfway down the length of the counter and stopping at a stool. He sat down next to the only other person at the counter and took off his gloves. Chauncey sat there, head down, staring into his beer, as he rolled the glass slowly between his hands. Is there any news of Linda? I've been worried sick, he said in a solemn voice. I don't understand. This is not like her. Not to show up for work and certainly not to call and let her mother know where she is. Joe stared at the counter. This has really got me stumped. I was thinking, 
Do you know of any reason why she might want to run away? No, Sheriff. That doesn't sound like Linda. We were planning on getting married. Here's your coffee, Sheriff, the waitress said. Thank you, Sally. Joe glanced up, watching her standing there, her eyes moving back and forth between the two of them, probably wondering what was going on. Sally, what about my order? A vacant look crossed her face. Your order? Oh, I forgot, that's right. I'll check on it now, she said as she turned quickly and headed through the swinging doors and disappeared into the kitchen. Joe smiled and shook his head. So did the two of you set a date? That's what we were supposed to talk about that night over dinner. But you didn't? Well, no. You got a little upset? Yes. I got a little upset, but I could wait. I love her. If she wanted to give it a couple of months, that was all right with me. Is that what she said? that she wanted to give it a couple of months? Well, not exactly. She said she needed a little space. So what happened? Chauncey drummed on the side of the glass he was holding and frowned. Look, Sheriff, I've told you all of this. You act like I'm a suspect. No, Chauncey, I'm not saying you're a suspect. I'm just trying to fit the pieces together. Chauncey reached into his pocket, pulled out three one-dollar bills, and laid them on the counter. Could you pass me the sugar? Joe asked. What? The sugar, please. Chauncey shook his head, smirked, picked up the container, and set it down in front of Joe with a thud. And the cream? Chauncey stared at him a moment, quizzically, and turned to pick up the cream. As Chauncey turned, Joe placed a cuff on his left wrist. He felt Chauncey's body tense. The young man's head snapped back to face Joe. What the hell, he said indignantly. Before he could pull away, Joe pulled the man's cuffed hand up and backwards, using the leverage it offered to his advantage, as he quickly stepped behind Chauncey and pushed him hard face down against the counter. Chauncey began to struggle to push back. Joe held him down and said quietly, Nobody has to get hurt, Chauncey. Put your right hand behind your back. When Chauncey hesitated, Joe quickly grabbed his right hand and pulled it behind the man's back. As he cuffed Chauncey's right hand, he quietly said, I found her, Chauncey. Oh, God, Chauncey gasped. Joe felt the man's body go slack. And now a preview of our next episode. Joe Martin has captured Chauncey Cuthbert. Will he be successful in his interrogation of Fayette's hired hand? Will Chauncey confess to the two heinous murders? How does a small boy's joyride affect Joe's investigation?
If you'd like to get the next free episode early, please consider becoming a Patreon member. It only costs $3 a month to join. That's less than a cup of coffee from you-know-who to enjoy access to compelling original storytelling. That's not the only benefit of being one of our Patreon members. In addition to early access to free episodes, only our Patreon members will have access to each new weekly episode of the second half of each book after the free portion of the book is over. And that's not all. Our Patreon members will also be treated to our periodic commentary, as well as having access to the entire back catalog of our episodes as our podcast goes forward. So please, click the link in the show description now if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member. Also, please note that you can follow us on Twitter at SDreadfuls. We will use Twitter to make any announcements concerning the podcast, like letting you know when the free portion of a book is about to end and when a new book will begin. We'd like to thank you for listening to Serial Dreadfuls. As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.